The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Olympics underway, I decided to get in the spirit by telling you the story of Tanya Harding. Luckily, I don't have a murder to tell you about today, but I do get to tell you about how one PNW Olympic hopeful may or may not have been involved in an assault for hire plot to dash the hopes of her figure skating rival to get that gold. But first, let's get our PNW town profile. Instead of a town, I'm going to profile a PNW venue that is involved in today's story. The Lloyd Center Ice Rink in Portland has been located in the iconic Lloyd Center Mall since the grand opening in 1960. At the time, the mall was viewed as the future of shopping, and it was one of the largest shopping centers in the U.S. A crowd of over 5,000 people turned out to the opening ceremony. The idea of an all-in-one shopping center was the brainchild of Ralph B. Lloyd in the year 1923, but did not come to fruition until 1960, when, right off the bat, the mall was an instant success. The businesses thrived, which triggered an expansion the following summer in 1961 that added 3,000 covered parking spaces and 100 new stores. They also began hosting parties, complete with a dance floor in front of Nordstrom's in the evenings. And in July of 1963, singer and actor Andy Williams visited Portland for the first time and signed autographs for fans at the Lloyd Center. The TV show Candid Camera also filmed at the Lloyd Center, where they played pranks on unsuspecting shoppers while capturing it from a hidden camera. I remember that show from when I was little, and I absolutely loved it. 
1973, the mall entered the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest simultaneous chess tournament. Chess player Jude Acers played 117 games at once inside the center. After 13 hours and 14 minutes, he won 93 games, tied 11, and lost 13. The following winter, a travel trailer was set up outside the mall as a temporary post office to aid in the holiday rush as a convenience to mall goers. By the mid-70s, multiple businesses had built high-rises near the mall, including condos, hotels, banks, and office buildings. In 1987, the mall underwent a $30 million renovation. In today's money, that would be roughly close to $65 million. The updates included a new parking garage, which brought the total number of parking spaces to 5,000. Then, in 1990, a $200 million renovation took place that gave the mall interior a facelift, including a completely brand new ice skating rink, which is where a good portion of today's story will take place. However, the new millennium brought struggles to malls in general, and Lloyd Center was no different. The mall has spent the last 20 years losing customers to online shopping, and many businesses, including the big box stores, have left the mall, causing hundreds of employees to lose their jobs. In January 2021, Macy's closed its door after 54 years in the Lloyd Center, forcing 80 people out of their jobs. Ideas have been floated around about what to do with the 23-acre property, including the possibility of demolishing it and building a stadium to house a Portland Major League Baseball team. But those discussions cooled during the pandemic. According to an Oregon Public Broadcasting article in November of 2021, the Texas-based commercial real estate firm that owns the mall owes more than $110 million to lenders, and the property was soon to be repossessed. However, in December of 2021, the shopping center was purchased by a company called Urban Renaissance Group, who told the store owners to give them two years to turn things around. They promised to immediately bring attention to concerns regarding cleanliness, security, and maintenance, including reinstating the hours of mall security that had been cut in half by the previous owners. The long-term goal is being kept under wraps, but the new owners are said to be working on a 15- to 20-year plan with the goal of keeping the Lloyd Center intact. And now, on to our story. Tanya Harding was born on November 12, 1970 in Portland, Oregon, to Lavana and Al Harding. Tanya was raised mostly by her mother and began skating at just three years old. Tanya was the product of her mother's fifth marriage, and her home life was rough. Her father worked odd jobs, and her mother worked long hours as a waitress so Tanya spent much of her childhood alone. To escape her difficult family life, she spent her days at the Lloyd Center Skating Rink in Portland. Ice skating is a very expensive sport to get into, between paying for rink time, lessons, costumes, and competitions. So Tanya's coach from the time she was little saw the talent she had and helped to cover some of the costs. In a 1986 interview, her coach Diane Rollinson stated that she knew that skating was Tanya's ticket out of the gutter, stating her family had lived in a terrible rental house, she had no supervision, and that she would have nothing in her life if it weren't for skating. In the ESPN 30 for 30 about Tanya called The Price of Gold, there's footage of the family's living conditions, and I do think the level of poverty Tanya grew up in does need to be understood to fully grasp this story. When she was skating, a lot of times she had no food in her stomach and didn't know if she was going to be able to continue lessons the next month if her parents couldn't come up with the money. 
There was also a reported incident where Tanya's mother lost her temper in the restroom at skate practice and repeatedly hit her with a hairbrush in front of other people. One witness considered calling CPS, but when she spoke to Tanya's coach about it, she talked her out of it. Because if Tanya was taken from her parents, she would likely never skate again, at least not consistently enough to mount to anything. Tanya's mom, Lavana Golden, which... Take a second and picture in your mind what you think someone named Lavana Golden would look like. Okay, if you're picturing a fur coat and a parrot on her shoulder, you'd be correct. But anyways, she, to this day, has denied all allegations of abuse. Tanya eventually chose to drop out of high school during her sophomore year to devote all of her time to skating. She did go on to earn her GED while climbing the ranks of U.S. figure skating between 1986 and 1989 and she won the Skate America competition in 1989. In 1990, she married her first husband, Jeff Galuli, who also became her manager. She kept working hard and went on to become the U.S. champion in 1991 after landing the first-ever triple axel by an American woman. Christy Yamaguchi placed second, and Nancy Kerrigan placed third. However, her personal life had turned tumultuous since marrying Jeff. She had filed for divorce twice in their three-year marriage, and she accused him of physically abusing her. The second divorce filing stuck and was official in 1993 after three years of marriage. Her personal life began to take a toll on her skating as well. After landing that triple axel in 1991 that made her the U.S. champion, her skating career went downhill. She kept attempting her triple axels, but was unable to land them. She qualified for the 92 Olympics, but when it was her time to compete, she showed up late and out of shape. She placed fourth with Christy Yamaguchi bringing home gold and Nancy Kerrigan landing the bronze. Yamaguchi decided to retire after winning her gold medal, so the rivalry between the fiery Tanya and the graceful Nancy began simmering. But unlike in the past, where you have four years before your next chance at winning an Olympic medal, The games would take place just two years later in 1994 because the Olympic Committee decided they wanted to stagger the Summer and Winter Olympics so there would be an Olympic Games every two years instead of both being in the same year. Meanwhile, Nancy Kerrigan was born in Massachusetts in 1969, the year prior to Tanya. She learned to skate by playing hockey with her older brothers. She did not grow up wealthy and was from a blue-collar family. But there was a big difference in her upbringing from Tanya in that her family life was idyllic. When she was little, she was a tomboy with short hair and did everything to keep up with her hockey player big brothers. But as she got older, she decided to try her hand at figure skating. She was elegant, graceful, and beautiful, the ideal figure skater that judges tend to love. She had been in Tanya's shadow a bit through 1991, but as Tanya began to struggle, Nancy began to shine, forming their rivalry. In 1992, Nancy won gold in the U.S. championships. In figure skating, part of your score is based on your song choice and your costume, which Nancy always chose popular music that the judges would like, and Tanya expressed herself by sometimes choosing rock songs, which the judges would dock her score over. Nancy could afford beautiful and expensive costumes, while Tanya handmade hers. A judge even approached Tanya once and told her to never wear anything like that again. But Tanya couldn't afford to spend $5,000 on a fancy costume, something Nancy could do at this point because she was gaining sponsors left and right. 
She was doing commercials for Campbell's Soup, Reebok, and Revlon, while Tanya had no endorsements or sponsorships. The press got involved in this rivalry as well, and mocked the differences between Tanya and Nancy. Even in the 2014 episode of 30 for 30 by ESPN on the pair, Connie Chung said, quote, Tanya Harding was hard-bitten, gutsy, athletic, a phenomenal skater. She could jump higher, she could spin faster, and she was determined. But here she was, the ugly duckling with frizzy blonde hair from the wrong side of the tracks. She was hardly the little image you have of a beautiful ice skater, end quote. Which, that was just rude. But to be fair, that was how she was treated in comparison to Nancy by the press, the judges, and fans of the sport. In January of 1994, Tanya and Nancy were preparing for the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, which you had to place in the top two in order to gain a spot, in order to guarantee a spot in the 94 Olympics. The event was being held in Detroit, and on January 6th, the skaters were on the ice practicing their routines. Nancy finished up and headed off the ice with her coaches not too far behind. But once she stepped behind a curtain, this is what the arena heard. Her coach saw a man with a club running away, so he chased him, but the man crashed through a locked door and got away. The description was of a tall white guy wearing a leather jacket. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And now back to the story. Unfortunately, the following day, it was announced that Nancy would be unable to compete in the U.S. Figure Skating Championships due to a deep bone bruise on her kneecap. The good news was, nothing was broken, but she was not well enough to compete, meaning she would be disqualified from participating in the 94 Olympics. At the U.S. Figure Skating Championship, Tanya placed first and Michelle Kwan placed second as the injured Nancy Kerrigan watched on. However, the Olympics committee decided to send Nancy instead of Michelle Kwan to the 94 Olympics, as she would be able to compete by the following month since nothing was broken. The rumblings behind the scenes about who may have been responsible for assaulting Nancy began almost immediately after the attack took place. Nancy's coaches speculated amongst themselves that Tanya had to be involved, as no one else had much to gain from Nancy being injured. On January 10th, Tanya landed back home in Portland and was welcomed by family, friends, fans, and a barrage of media. She spoke with them stating how happy she was, but it won't be the true crown until she gets her chance with Nancy and that she will whip her butt, which many people took offense to as Nancy had just gone through a traumatic experience just days earlier. Tanya had also hired a bodyguard named Sean Eckhart since there was an alleged madman on the loose. She got straight back to training for the Olympics and with a large audience as she still practiced at the Lloyd Center so fans and the media could look on as she trained. But just days later, a letter arrived at the COIN News Center implicating Tanya, her ex-husband Jeff Galuli, and Tanya's bodyguard, Sean Eckhart, in the assault of Nancy Kerrigan. A COIN reporter called Tanya and said she would show her the letter if she agreed to an interview, which she did. She denied all involvement and only answered questions her ex-husband allowed her to. 
Coyne then handed over the letter to the FBI, who traced it back to a woman who was friends with the father of Sean Eckhart. Sean and his father had been telling everyone around them about the plot, and that's how the letter made its way to the news station. The FBI interviewed Sean, and he immediately confessed to being involved and gave the names of everyone else. Sean was the first to be placed under arrest. Next was a man named Derek Smith, who allegedly drove the getaway car. And then the actual attacker, named Shane Stant of Portland, was arrested third. In the plot, Tanya's ex-husband had hired Shane Eckhart to put together the so-called hit team, and Sean hired Shane and Derek to carry out the attack. The first plan was that Stant would attack her in her own home, but he couldn't gain access. He then attempted the attack at her Massachusetts training facility, but she had already left town for the U.S. Figure Skating Championship. And so Plan C became the one that went down, where Shane attacked her at the championship facility. Their plan went so horribly wrong, it was easy for the authorities to have more than enough evidence at trial, aside from Sean's confession. For example, Shane had booked the Detroit Hotel under his real name, when he had no reason to be in Detroit at that time. The media began to speculate on Tanya's involvement, a claim which she adamantly denied then and to this day. She originally also denied that her ex-husband Jeff was involved, but after a short amount of time, she says she began to question his involvement. Meanwhile, Nancy Kerrigan had six weeks from the day of the attack to the Olympic Games. She spent all day every day in physical therapy, and it took four weeks before she was cleared to take the ice again. This left her with two weeks to prepare for the Olympics. She chose to shoulder the trauma of the event until after the Olympics. She didn't pay attention to the news or what was happening in the case and threw herself into being physically well enough for the Olympics. Nancy was able to train in a private facility while Tanya was still training in the Lloyd Center with a crowd and reporters looking on. Even Diane Sawyer was spotted watching her and attempting to get an interview. She even claimed that the camera flashes affected her training because they would cause her to lose concentration and fall while she was practicing her jumps. As the Olympics grew closer, America took sides. On one end, you had the ice princess, the victim, and the graceful figure skater, Nancy Kerrigan, while others supported Tanya as they saw her as the underdog, who was a little rough around the edges but had worked her tail off to make it to the Olympics, and there had been no evidence she was involved in the plot to harm Kerrigan. Then, her ex-husband, Galuli, reached a deal with the prosecutor that threw Tanya under the bus, and the other men involved followed suit. He claimed that Tanya was in on the plan and even called the training facility to get Nancy's practice schedule for the men to carry out the plan. At a press conference, Tanya denied being involved in the planning, but did take responsibility for not reporting things she had found out about the assault when she arrived back in Oregon after the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. After this admission, the Olympics Committee announced that Tanya would be removed from Team USA, but Tanya's attorneys filed a $10 million lawsuit since she had earned her spot on the team and she had not been found guilty of involvement in the attack. Tanya and the Olympics Committee settled out of court with the decision that she would be allowed to compete. With that, Tanya was on her way to the 1994 Olympics in Norway. Several judges openly admitted that the attack would affect their scoring on Tanya, I think as kind of a way to discourage her from competing, hoping that maybe she would step down and the sideshow would be over so the Olympics could carry on without the controversy. 
But Tanya did not care. She gave no comment on the matter and was ready to compete. The scandal caused much fanfare around the Olympics practices because Tanya and Nancy were forced to share the rink and have the same practice times, even though Nancy's coach had requested they be separate. He was told by the Olympics committee that this was not their problem, and what ended up happening was that almost 2,000 people packed into an arena built for a couple hundred spectators just to watch the practice. Tanya apologized that her husband had been involved in the attack when she saw Nancy on the ice for the first time. The apology was completely ignored by Nancy, who was wearing the same exact outfit she was wearing on the day of the attack, which many people suspected was a bit of an F you to Tanya. In the first round, which was the short program, Nancy went first with a flawless performance, while Tanya's did not go well. For this event, Nancy was in first place and Tanya was in 10th, but there was still hope she could catch up and medal. In the long program finals, they announced Tanya's name to start her routine, but she was nowhere to be found. She appeared when she was just seconds away from being disqualified and seemed distraught. She started the routine, attempted a jump that she failed, and began crying. She skated over to the judges and informed them that her lace had broken and she couldn't continue. As this wasn't her first time claiming something to be wrong with her skates, many people thought that she may have made up the issue after failing the first jump in an attempt to get a second chance, which the judges did allow, and she ended up placing 8th overall. Nancy Kerrigan won the silver medal by the slimmest of margins to Ukrainian Oksana Bayul. Some speculated that since the judges from other countries had made it known they were holding Tanya's actions against her while scoring, they might be doing the same for Nancy since it brought so much drama and distraction to the sport. Nancy was obviously upset about not getting the gold, and a hot mic caught her complaining about how long it was taking Oksana to fix her makeup before they could be presented with their medals, saying, quote, She's just going to cry it all off anyways. This was not taken very well and viewed as unsportsmanlike. So as much as Nancy and Tanya were portrayed as good and bad, princess and trailer trash, I will say that both are human, and although Nancy obviously didn't deserve to be attacked, I will say she was portrayed as the perfect ice princess, but I think she was also fiery and competitive in a similar way to Tanya. The following month, in March of 1994, Tanya entered a guilty plea to hindering prosecution after accepting a deal. She admitted knowing information after the fact, not being involved in the actual attack. She was sentenced to three years probation and ordered to pay $160,000 in fines. This caused her to lose everything. She was already in financial dire straits before the massive fines, and she was also stripped of her U.S. championship medals and was banned for life from the U.S. Figure Skating Association, meaning she could never skate competitively again. She had earned her GED, but really had nothing to fall back on. And to add insult to injury, the sport of figure skating took off shortly thereafter, which came with a massive windfall to athletes of Tanya's caliber by the way of sponsorships, commercials, and national tours where skaters performed in front of audiences all around the country. All of these things were now opportunities that Tanya would never have. Nancy Kerrigan ended up making millions through these avenues. Nancy got married less than two years after the 94 Olympics and started a family with her husband. They now have three kids, and she tries to stay out of the spotlight as much as possible while focusing on her family. She was inducted into the U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame in 2004. 
Sean Eckert, who changed his name to Brian Griffith, died at the age of 40 of unknown causes. Shane Stant, who was only 22 at the time he attacked Kerrigan for money, now lives a quiet life in Southern California. The whereabouts of Derek Smith are unknown. Tanya first tried her hand at starting a band called The Golden Blades, which were booed off the stage in her hometown of Portland. She then gave skating lessons to children at the Lloyd Center. In 2002, she was offered a television opportunity to be on Fox's Celebrity Boxing, where she beat up Paula Jones, the woman who had accused President Clinton of sexual assault. Reality TV in its infancy was so wild. And since that went well, she became a professional boxer for a few years, which helped her scrape by financially. She then did odd jobs to make ends meet, including landscaping, working on cars, and doing appearances. She is now married with one son. In 2018, she placed third on Dancing with the Stars, and according to her Instagram, she's very active on Cameo. And that is the story of Portland's own Tanya Harding. For this episode, my main source was the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called The Price of Gold. I highly recommend it and any of the other 30 for 30s. I've watched quite a few on Netflix and Hulu, and they have all been highly entertaining. This episode's wine that I paired with my true crime is Cinder Chardonnay out of the Idaho Snake River Valley. I absolutely love me some Chardonnay, and this was no different. And the bottle is really cool looking. With a delicate touch of the black walnut barrels and a light toasted nut aroma that doesn't overpower the clean expression of delicate citrus and pear notes that follow. Cheers and thanks for listening. Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at Upper Left Corner Pod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.